Well, good morning. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks, worship team. I don't know if you noticed, there's a couple fans up here. Uh, Michelle sporting her uh, San Francisco 49ers gear. Uh, she even went all spiritual, like it says faithful on it, you know. Um, and then Colin's got the Kansas City thing going on. I mean, it's a, I hear there's a little bit of a pickup football game going on tonight, a little backyard scrimmage. Um, I've been thinking a lot about uh, this sporting event, how big of a deal tonight is in our country. Um, for those of us that grew up around sports, whether it was football games, ba- uh, baseball games, especially baseball games, basketball games, maybe it was um, going to see somebody play tennis, or whether you played sports or you watched somebody play sports, sports has a lot of metaphor to it, doesn't it? In fact, in our country, um, and even around the world, sports often is an emblem of something much deeper, a word like freedom, a word that is so deeply tied to us as a people, as a culture, as humanity, that it often goes way deeper than just the sporting event itself and whatever's happening on the field. So tonight, it's a big deal in our country, this NFL game, some 140 million people worldwide watched this last year. That's a lot of people, right? Um, Some people were there just to watch the commercials, you know, to debate which one was better than the other. Um, Some people are there just for the the hangout time, the food with friends and family, um, the halftime, you know, show, whatever's going to go on there. Some people, a handful might even watch the game. Um, I was talking to Sharon, one of our worship leaders, and she was saying a few years ago, couple, I can't remember when it was, when Bruno Mars was the halftime uh, show. And uh, she was saying like, you know, they had all the food and everything, all the decorations and tons of people poured into their house. And uh, the game started and nobody's in front of the TV. Um, And then all of a sudden, um, halftime comes, the lights go out, the volume gets cranked up, everybody's shushing each other. And they were like all dialed in for Bruno Mars. And then as soon as it's over, you know, it was back to just hanging out and eating. Um, Football. Super Bowl, it's a big deal, has a lot circulating around it, even the star-spangled banner, this, this freedom, this topic, however, wherever we find ourselves on this journey of freedom, it's a big topic, it's a big topic to Jesus. We're going to talk about that in the scripture. Football is also a big deal in other parts of the world. In fact, they use the word football as well, but it's not a pigskin, oblong-shaped thing. It's this round leather ball, um, and it's actually pretty popular, even though it's not as much so in the U.S. Some 1.12 billion people tuned in for the final versus Croatia and France in 2018. A couple people are pretty passionate about this. I grew up in South America, in Brazil, uh, in Sao Paulo, and, uh, and there, it's a big deal. It takes on like a religious fervor, and the celebration, the fandom, it goes so much deeper than just who's on the field. In fact, in a lot of countries where we've traveled, uh, some of the places where we have partnerships, I've been in some of these countries where what you often find out is that whenever uh, there's a political uh, unrest in that country, maybe they don't have the same political freedoms that we do, whenever there is turmoil and upheaval, some of the first sporting events that they cancel are soccer games because they know uh, the passion around that, the organization, all the people gathered for that. It's often a place for a catalyst for freedom movements to take place and so they eliminate, eliminate those quickly. 
Maybe sports isn't your deal, but you've experienced freedom in other ways growing up. Maybe some of you remember getting your driver's permit, right? What a big deal that was, posing for the camera, uh, finally getting that little uh, ticket that is so symbolic of freedom. This beetle here, this car, it's not my car, but my wife, when her dad passed away two years ago, um, this was his first car. He bought it brand new off the lot. And when he passed away and, and uh, had given it to Addie, um, we also got the paperwork on this. Uh, he purchased this on November 15th, 1972. Um, it was a 73 Beetle with a couple options that he included, which uh, he added seatbelts, apparently was an option back then, not that important, I guess, um, and an AM FM radio. After all of it was added up, a total of $2,906 brand new off the lot. He did put $753.76 uh, down on it, so he had 36 months of $64.59 payments. Can you imagine? Some of us are like, man, that's freedom right there. Um, maybe the cell phone. I can't even imagine uh, the working out and the lifting you must have had to do to carry a brick like that around back then. But for students, you know, it's pretty popular now that a car and, and a permit, it doesn't mean the same thing anymore. They've got this tool in their hands that gives them so much freedom, access to their friends 24-7. You can buy movie tickets and get directions, and it's just uh, this amazing piece of technology that symbolizes freedom. Maybe some of us will be graduating this year, walking across, getting that diploma, and it's a new season of freedom. I'm excited about this month, though, not just for some of those reasons and, and the Super Bowl tonight, but yesterday marked the first day of an important month uh, in our country, uh, a different picture of freedom. February, as many of you know, is Black History Month. I was having uh, lunch with one of our elders this week. He said, you know, it should just be called American History Month. There's so much that we have to learn from those who sacrificed courageously and gave so much, not just for the rights and the dignity of African Americans, not just for minorities, but as they elevated the dignity of those, they elevated the dignity of our whole country. We're here today. We're here today in a far better place, far better place than we were not that long ago but we have a long way to go. And so this month, thinking back on some of these iconic emblems, profiles, symbols of freedom, Harriet Tubman, the Tuskegee uh, Airmen, the uh, Martin Luther King Jr. just celebrating his birthday, honoring him just two weeks ago, uh, Jackie Robinson, Rosa Parks, even other modern day uh, visible symbols of inspiration around what it means to be a voice around this topic. We've come so far. Church, we have so far to go still. So far to go. We're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about why does the gospel and freedom intersect? 
around this topic that's so critical to the church today. In fact, I'm part of a group, uh, some of you know, we talked uh, last year about launching this group called USA Unites. It's a small group of young people. Uh, Prashanda Visser, one of our partners from Sri Lanka, he came and preached here, and he told the story of how when he was going to Notre Dame to get his master's, he and some friends organized uh, an organization called uh, Global Unites where they in different countries have united and rallied young people around this topic of reconciliation and what does it mean for us to listen better, to pay attention, to dignify, to honor. What does it mean for us to be a generation that's sick and tired of the polarization and the division? It has to end. What does it look like for us? And we said, can we be a pilot group? Can we start this? USA Unites is one of the uh, newest countries among the 10 or 12 that are formed. We've been meeting for a few months. In fact, we got invited this past Wednesday to go to Lyman High School just around the block here. And a few of us went over there. We were invited by this amazing teacher uh, who teaches a class called Civic Engagement and Innovation. What an awesome class all of us should have taken in high school. And we got to process with them, share some of the things that we're talking about, but we got to hear what this amazing group of young people are doing that are passionate about this community. Projects that they're taking on, groups that they're forming to make a difference on some of the most difficult challenges and topics that we're facing as a country right now. There's a lot of work for us to do. The reason this is such a big deal for us is when we think back on church history, there's some parts of the church history that has not all been that good, but there are also some real shining examples of the way the church has stood in the face of struggle and some of the great movements that come out of, uh, of the church are movements like the civil rights movement birthed out of Christians who said enough is enough. Hospitals, think about every major city you go in, what do you see? You see hospitals that are established by Christians, healthcare, anti-human trafficking, disaster response, homelessness, poverty. So many of these movements came out of, of, a, of a people that are rooted in the belief that freedom and the gospel in Jesus has a lot to say about how we live out our faith today. The reason this is such a big deal to us is because of this emblem. There's no greater symbol for us as a church than the cross. This incredible, uh, complex image of pain and suffering and trauma, brokenness, death, and it merges with life and hope, forgiveness, salvation. Jesus taught a lot on this topic. In fact, our destination this morning is this table where Jesus reminds us of what he did on the cross isn't something that we keep inward. It's something that changes outwardly the community around us. So we're gonna talk about that. If you're new here, we are going through a series that we've just labeled, we, we call it Awaken, why? We believe that what Jesus was teaching in the first century was critical not just for them in the early church, 
but critical for us in the 21st century today. We're looking at the stories of Jesus, the conversations, the interactions, the miracles, the struggles, what he had to say, what does that mean for us? And I love that John wrote uh, at the very end of his gospel, he doesn't leave any guessing as to why he wrote the gospel of John. It's simply, these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. We're gonna talk about what Jesus means to hold on to, to believe in his teaching. And so if you have your scriptures, would you turn to John uh, chapter eight? We're gonna pick up where Pastor Matt has left off these last couple weeks. John chapter eight, you can also follow along in your worship guide. Um, It'll be on the screen as well. We're just gonna kind of let the Bible speak here. I'm gonna read it straight through just seven verses and kind of get the setting, get the scene for what Jesus is teaching here. Just a reminder, he's in the temple courts. That's where he's been in this chapter. And he's doing a lot of teaching and and a lot of unpacking on this topic of light and life and now freedom. Here's what he says. Even as Jesus spoke, many believed in him. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? And Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus has a little little bit of passion around this topic, doesn't he? In fact, what I wanna do this morning is in these seven verses, I actually wanna look at five statements that Jesus makes. Some of you have Bibles or you grew up with a Bible um, where wherever the words of Jesus were spoken, they're in what color? They're in red, right? So uh, we call that like a red letter, the red letters of Jesus. Let's look at the red letters of Jesus. There's only one verse, just one small section, a couple verses actually um, that aren't in red where there's a response from the audience. But what does it look like for us to look at what Jesus is saying in his own words that to hold on to his teaching is to be one of his disciples? What does it mean then to know truth and that truth sets us free? What is Jesus talking about? That every one of us is a sin, uh, sins and is a slave to sin. And what does it mean for us to have uh, no permanent place if we are enslaved to sin, that we are displaced, but a son belongs to it forever? And what does this freedom mean that Jesus is referencing? And so let's talk about this. Let's look at this first section. What does Jesus mean by holding to? I was thinking about this, and I know we have a lot of young people um, who attend the 11 o'clock service, and and maybe even uh, those of us that are a little bit older, we remember what it was like, you know, studying, cramming for a test. You might see holding to my teaching that Jesus is mean, just cramming information. How do we get as much in there? Some of us remember the days of um, not studying enough before a final exam, right? And then what do we do the minutes before? I mean, we are just jamming as much information desperately as we can, hoping 
somehow miraculously that in the recesses and the synapses of our mind, it will just miraculously bring back that which we need to know for that test, right? And I was thinking about how so often we think about holding to teaching as just gathering information, stuffing information. Maybe you've prayed one of these prayers before when you've been in one of those situations, oh Lord, hear my anxious plea. This calculus, it's killing me. I know not of DX or DY and probably won't until the day I die. Please, Lord, help me in this hour as I take my case to the highest power. I do not care for fame or loot, but help me find just one square root, right? I mean, we've all been there. And you know what? God loves those prayers too. He still listens to those. He doesn't dismiss those. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here when he says, hold on to my teaching. And so what I want to do is just unpack a little bit this complex word. Hold to uh, comes from this Greek word, amino. It it translates a little funky into uh, the English. It's not how we talk every day, to hold on to teaching. Um, In some of your translations, depending on, on the Bible you have, it might say to abide in his teaching, to remain in his teaching. This word is a big deal. It's used over 40 times in the Gospel of John, in other uh, parts of the New Testament where John writes, uh, used 23 times. When something is used that often, you know it's a big deal. And the word actually means, sort, sort of in how we would talk today, holding on to Christ's teaching, holding on to his truth, is to be all in, to fully embrace. That's what we're talking about. That's what Jesus is referencing here. That word truth, aletheia, means to be holding on not just to an idea or some abstract principle, but to be holding on to Jesus himself. Jesus knows his audience, the Jewish listeners, and he recognizes the danger of religiosity that exists among them. And it says that, that Jesus was speaking to the Jews who had believed. What was he concerned about with that audience? Well, we know that part of what they say later, we are Abraham's descendants. In other words, to them, religiosity was not putting their faith in, not holding on to Jesus. What they were holding on to instead was their Jewish heritage. So when Jesus is saying these things to them, they're like, check that box, we're... We're uh, already in line. We are already a part of God's family. We're good to go. And Jesus is saying, you're missing the point here. You're not going all in. You're not holding on to. You're not understanding my teaching and what I'm saying. And what I've been thinking about is, if that is what Jesus was saying to them, knowing his audience there, to the Jews who had believed, what would Jesus say if the words had been, to the American Christians who had believed. What would he say today are examples of religiosity where we are holding on to something else instead of holding on to Christ? For a lot of us, I was thinking in American culture, kind of in the West, we love options. Right? I mean, we, we are an option-fatigued society. I, had, I was talking to a, uh, a missionary that had, had been living um, in another part of the world for so many years that when they came back, um, one of the first things that overwhelmed them was walking down the cereal aisle at the grocery store. 
They were paralyzed. They were so overwhelmed. They did not know where to start. There's so many cereals. We as Americans love options. We love to pick and choose what we like, what we don't like. And I believe what Jesus would be saying here is there's a danger in that level of religiosity. Religiosity is not a bad word. It just means to have fervor, to have passion. But what Jesus is addressing is a misplaced, a misguided passion in the wrong place, in the wrong thing. And in our case, it's so often, give me a little bit of Oprah, give me a little bit of Ellen, give me a little bit of this, hold that, I don't need that. I was thinking about that when I found, I was opening a drawer this week, um, kind of cleaning out something that needed to be cleaned out at the house, and I found uh, this, uh, this note that my son had actually written. Some of you guys, you know I have a 10-year-old son named Wyatt. He keeps me on my toes for sure, and when he, he's in fourth grade now, but I think it, he wrote this, I believe, around first or second grade. I, I can't quite remember where they're learning how to write and spell and all that. He had put this note on my door because he felt like it was imperative that we know as parents the types of food that he liked and the types of food that he didn't like. He had noticed that often when it's time to eat dinner, we were clearly misunderstanding the things that we liked. When we go grocery shopping, we must not know the types of things that he prefers to eat, the things that he doesn't like to eat. And so he made us this list. Um, it looks a little something like this. I, I didn't make this up. This is literally the list. Bad food on one side. Lima beans, hamburger, hot dogs, oysters. We, we don't even eat oysters for dinner. Um, Black-eyed peas. I don't know. The number five, no good. Six is good. Um, the last one I couldn't figure out. It, I was driving and it finally hit me. It came on like a light bulb. Baked potato. Not a fan of the baked potato. But then he wanted us to know the good food. So he kind of put on the other side, shrimp, crad, you know, those, those lowercase b's and d's are a pain when you're in first and second grade. Uh, fish, mushrooms, here's a nuance, hamburgers. Wait a minute, is it bad food, is it good food? Hamburgers on buns, bad food. Hamburger and mushroom gravy, he will co-sign on that all day. I mean, that kid loves that stuff. Uh, black beans and rice sausage, Cheerios, chicken, pot pie, steak, turkey. Listen, we do this, don't we? We are such, such an option-obsessed culture. Whether it's what cell phone carrier to switch to. Do we want to watch Sling or Netflix or what, what cable? We are so obsessed with wanting the freedom to have all of our options. And I believe as Americans, this has bled over into how we view faith. When it comes to holding to Jesus, we often pick the parts that we like and hold on tighter to those, sort of ignore, deflect, sweep under the rug the parts that are just a little too uncomfortable. Maybe we even create lists once in a while, things that we'll do for God, things that we just won't do for God. Maybe you've had a list, a short list. Maybe it's not even very long. God, I'll give you some of my time. I'll give you some of my money. I'll go to church once in a while. I'll serve a little bit here and there. And what we're talking about here as a church, as we've been on this journey for a couple years now, our vision being fully alive in Jesus, it's this holding on to all in, embrace of everything that Jesus teaches. The reason this is so critical is because we are substituting for Christ these far lesser things. 
we find ourselves so disoriented, so discouraged, so confused. Talking to some people this week who, uh, you know, just feel like they're going through the, the motions, the rhythm of a day, waking up, doing the stuff that they need to do, going to bed, feeling displaced, not sure what's the point. It's because we've lost the ability to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that's what Jesus is saying here. I love how C.S. Lewis says it in Mere Christianity. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Church, we are so often substituting what Jesus ultimately paid the price for. When it comes to this abiding, maybe some of us have never had that experience. What does it mean to hold on to Jesus? Maybe you've never had that. Maybe some of us remember once or twice what that was like, but we've gotten in a rut. We've gotten in a place where we're out of sync and holding on to Christ's teaching has just gotten a little shaky underneath us. Can I offer you some practical counsel? This is free of charge. This is just some stuff that I practice. What does it mean to abide in Christ? You know, we are a people who live in rhythms, right? I mean, from our heartbeat rhythm to the tempo of our breathing to uh, the, the cycle of a day, a sunrise, a sunset, the cycle of the, the moon over a month. We are a people that live in cycles and rhythms. And what I began to learn is I need to actually pay attention to those rhythms. In fact, I started thinking about what are the pivots what are the points of change in my life on a day-to-day -day basis? For me, my first point of pivot is when I am trying to open my eyes and wake up in the morning. The alarm goes off, or usually I wake up before the alarm goes off, and I'm trying to figure out what day of the week it is. The kids need to go to school, what's going on? Once I start making sense of what's happening, I begin to think about the people that I'm gonna interact with first. That's my first pivot, and it's my family. And I begin to just pray for each by name that in the 30 minutes or so that we'll have together before everybody's off to do whatever they're doing that day, that I would love them well, serve them well, care for them well. What are your pivots? What are those points of change in your day? For me, another one is when I'm driving to work. That's my second pivot. And I begin to think about the appointments I have with people and I think of them specifically. Or after lunch, I start thinking of who, who those people are gonna look like. Or on my way home, back to the people that I will see in my house that evening. I begin to lift their faces up. It's okay if you don't know what to pray for them. 
God as the creator, he knows what's going on in their lives. Just lift their faces up. Use those pivots in your day to hold on to the people that God has put around you, but also to hold on to his teaching. For some of us, what does that look like? How do, you, how do you get into God's word throughout a day? Some of us have different kinds of jobs where that's very challenging um, to have you know, your Bible around with you. What does it look like to hold on to Christ's teaching through the course of a day, through the rhythm of a day? Let me just show you um, something simple that I have used for years. Um, as often as I can. I love this tool. In fact, it's something that we put together years ago um, here at Northland. And uh, if you have the, the Northland app um, on your phone, you can actually go to that app and at the very bottom, there's a little button called Liturgy. And when you click on that button, it will give you a different scripture to look at at three different times of the day. In fact, this is what it looks like for today. If you woke up this morning... One of the ways you could hold on to who Christ is and his teaching is to meditate on this psalm. There's almost always a psalm that starts the day. There's a midday prayer. Depending on what time you look at that app, you'll find that there's a prayer in the middle. And then at the end, it comes back to usually a gospel reading, something from the New Testament. And it's an easy way not only to look at that scripture, but to hold on to it not just as a way to pack in some information into our heads, but to let it seep down in the way that Jesus was teaching into our hearts so that it actually impacts the people and the culture that we're shaping around us. All right, let's keep going. So what is the response here? I mean, they hear this stuff. What, is, what are the listeners, how do they respond? They do what we so often do as people. They hear almost nothing that Jesus says, right? And just pinpoint on one thing. This is what they said. Well, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Well, in fact, as history has shown, they've been enslaved quite often as Israelites. You can go back in history and look. Uh, the oppression, the physical enslavement that they had experienced all the way back to Genesis, Exodus, from Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Media, Persia, Greece, Syria, Rome. They were a people who had deeply known what it means to be enslaved, but Jesus is talking about something far deeper here. He says, very truly, I tell you, uh, the, the words very truly there, whenever you see those words in the New Testament, it actually is translated from the Hebrew. It's actually the words amen, amen. Whenever we say the word amen at the end of a prayer, what it's basically saying is we are affirming emphatically that this is true, amen. Jesus says amen, amen. Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He doesn't want us to miss the point that it doesn't matter what kind of ethnic background we have, what kind of economic background we have, rich, poor, whatever time zone, whatever country, whatever political system we live in, every single person is enslaved to sin. And it has a deep, profound effect in the placement of who we are in the family of God. My daughter and I, we uh, recently, ever since, well, she's in the USA Unites group and we've been talking a lot, especially over the last couple weeks uh, with, with Martin Luther King Jr. And, and just honoring that day and having these conversations with that group. 
We want to listen better, pay attention better to the stories, some that we heard and maybe forgot, some that we just don't know as much of. So we wanted to go and see the movie Harriet. And I don't know if you saw that movie, but it's a powerful, powerful picture of some of our history here in the U.S., And I love this story. In fact, I I took some notes and we were kind of talking about it afterwards and just made some some notes of some things that we just don't want to forget. Let me kind of recap to you who this person Harriet Tubman was. Her given name was, was actually Araminta Ross. Her close family called her Minty. She changed her name Uh, to Harriet Tubman after she escaped slavery. She actually, in order to get away from her slave owners, had to run and flee some 90 to 100 miles north to move from Maryland to Pennsylvania, one of the free states at the time. Couldn't read. Had to travel mostly by night, by herself. What did she use? Was it waves or was it Google Maps, no, it was the North Star. That's the only thing she had to move her in the right direction. She would stop periodically to connect with those who were a part of the Underground Railroad Network who would give her insight on where to go next. What's so amazing about her story though, I mean, there's a lot. Upon arrival, in Pennsylvania and getting that freedom, she knew she couldn't hold on to that herself. It couldn't be something that she contained just for what she wanted. And so she went back and made some 13 missions, risking her life back and forth to help those who were still enslaved. She was nicknamed Moses. Why? What did Moses do? Liberated the Israelites out of the slavery of the Egyptians. And after so many of those missions, she continued as a cook, a nurse, a spy, an army scout. I mean, she could probably kick some butt, I'm just saying. It's courageous, sacrificial. A person who knew what it meant to hold on to Jesus. A devout follower of Christ. She died at the young age of 91. An amazing story of what Jesus actually models for us. Church, do we know what freedom does? Freedom must give itself away. It's what Jesus did for each of us. In fact, I was thinking of a story someone recently was telling me um, here on staff. They said, hey, by the way, it was kind of a random conversation. They said, did you hear about uh, these 10 women that got baptized at one of the correctional facilities? I was like, what? So I got the email from the person that was there and actually uh, performed these baptisms, an incredible picture of what it means to experience and witness freedom and to witness what Jesus ultimately came to do. I emailed Lucy Price. This is what she said to me. Good evening, Sean. Here's a few more details. About a month beforehand, Elaine and I led the women inside in prayers of salvation. Elaine specifically prayed over 10 ladies to receive Christ She and I wanted to do baptisms, but it wasn't going to happen that night because of time constraints. Uh, 
So we picked a date, we were both available, and asked a couple more volunteers to help. Paula and Katie were able to join us. That evening, we let the women know what would happen and explained what it all meant. We had the ones who were interested sign up. Just so you know, here's what it looks like inside the jail chapel. Women were seated on metal benches in rows. Then Paula called the name of the women on the list. One by one, as they came up, Katie gave them a washcloth to use. As Elaine spoke the word over them and they agreed to make this a public profession of their faith in Jesus, I poured some water over their foreheads. Every single time the room erupted in cheers and clapping and tears. It's an odd place to think about women getting so excited to encourage their fellow podmates in this. It actually felt quite surreal for those of us volunteering. We kept looking at each other in wonder and joy for these women. Obviously, we know this doesn't make life perfect and make all their troubles go away. We did let them know that a life spent following Jesus was the, was the only kind of freedom that matters. When their souls are free, then and only will their chains truly be broken. Why did Jesus do what he did on the cross? This symbol of freedom for us. It was so that the chains would be broken within us, the spiritual enslavement that every single one of us has apart from Christ. But it's not something that we're supposed to contain and hold to ourselves. It's something that we freely give away as Christ has given us. It's ultimately what calls us and compels us to this table.